chapter 5. I'm going to read just the first part of the chapter um, through verse 21. So Ephesians 5, verse, uh, starting at verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works, unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful to even speak of the, thing, the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes, vi- becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as, wi- not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we're going to look at um, verses 18 to 21. Everybody's probably heard of the saying, you are what you eat. So that makes me a very large cup of black rifle coffee thanks to my wife. And at times that phrase, we use that phrase to motivate people to eat right. Okay? But if you take it a little too literally, it, it gets kind of funny because then my daughter has a Pop-Tart and my other daughter, Abby, Sarah's the Pop-Tart, and Abby's a bagel. Now there is some truth to that statement. If all we eat is junk food and Twinkies and things like that, at some point it's going to show in us physically. Not right away, but you're, gonna feel, you're not going to feel good uh, you know, eventually it's going to really affect your health badly. And you can make a variation of that saying there's some truth to it, maybe even more truth to it. If we're constantly sitting in front of the TV and Facebook and YouTube and the Internet and things like that, our minds are going to get soft and fluffy, and just like our body will if we're eating that junk food all the time, if we're eating Twinkies and pizza. What we take in, whether it's food or mental content, everything affects us. It can change us. As Christians, we should know that from Scripture. We should know that full well. That We've seen that as we've been looking at Ephesians. There's this contrast of darkness and light. And we've seen that we were the darkness. And we've seen some of the things that Paul is warning us against. And that we need to be filled with God's Word. Specifically in these verses, Paul's teaching us that we need to be filled with the Spirit of God. And what we need as Christians in order to live in a manner worthy of the call which we've been called to 
in order to walk as children of the light, Paul says. And we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So in these verses, what I want to kind of look at or a theme for this is Christians', Christians spirit-filled life is characterized by thankfulness and allegiance to Christ and His church. Three points we'll go through is spirit-filled harmony, spirit-filled thanksgiving, and spirit-filled submission. So uh, first, spirit-filled harmony. Look at verse 18 and 19. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So the first thing to notice in this verse is the concept of not being drunk, but being filled with the Spirit. Now that's a concept that goes all the way through uh, this section of verses 18 through 21 that we're looking at. And it's simple to look at this verse in isolation and just say, well, it's Spirit-filled harmony. But it's all these things, all these points that we're looking at are all about being Spirit-filled. That's why I listed them the way we did. But it's not being drunk with wine. So being filled, filled with the Spirit is that controlling idea for all of these verses. In fact, if you look at what I understand is from the original writings in this verse, 18 through 21 is really one long sentence. So what are the results of that? What are the results of being filled with the Spirit? Well, well, it'll include how we address each other. It'll include our thanksgiving and our submission to each other. So now look at verse 19 again. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now notice it's addressing one another, which means this is in context of the church. So it's not just me and Jesus. It's not just me and my Bible. There's a general ministry that we have for each other. We're addressing one another, so we're not off by ourselves. The two go hand in hand. We're, we're together. We're making melody and singing, addressing one another. So there's no such thing in, there, in that verse that teaches there. It's, there's no such thing as a loner Christian. You'll see in the Bible, Pastor Harding has mentioned this before in sermons, you never see someone described in the Bible as completely by themselves. They may be off by themselves for a short period of time, but they're always united back to the body of Christ, to God's church. Now what do we make about this addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? You really can't get past this verse without looking at the idea of exclusive psalmody in worship. Okay, I like that our church, we sing, if you look through our, our worship services, we're a little what I call psalms heavy. We'll, we'll sing about 50% or better. Some, some worship services, it's 100% psalms. That's a good thing. I like that. Um, they're tough to sing sometimes, probably because we don't practice them as often as we should. And our new Trinity hymnal has been really good. Uh, my wife and I and, and my kids, we've all liked it. We enjoy that the Psalms, they're easier to sing in the new hymnal, I think. But many who hold to that exclusive psalm singing as part of the regulative principle of worship will use this verse, and there's a parallel verse in Colossians 3 as part of their argument. You know, for psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But if you're honest about this verse, the passage isn't speaking exclusively to corporate worship. Right? This verse is talking about all of life. Now, in the sense that we should be hearing each other sing in worship, since we're going to include corporate worship in this, it's not exclusively corporate worship in this verse, but in the sense that it does include corporate worship, we should be hearing each other. We ought to be able to hear each other sing. So if we go to a church where the music is played so loud that you can't even hear each other sing, there's really not a lot of benefit to that. 
right? It doesn't help us. That we're not addressing each other at that point. If you've ever been to a church that has almost like a rock concert feel, there's a big screen up there with all the words on it. It's a really loud band. Um, it's a guy with a microphone up there singing. I've been to those before, and you look around, and not everybody's really singing. The people up front are singing. They've got the amplification. They've got the loudspeakers. Um, but there's not really a lot of singing by the congregation. And I don't think that follows this verse very well. It follows, turns into more of a performance. So at that point, I get pretty sympathetic with the, the idea of exclusive psalmody. Now, in respect to those that argue for exclusive psalmody, they'll also say that while well, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs all refer to psalms, and part of their, their argument will be that if you look through the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, a lot of the psalms will include those words and headings uh, about being, being a hymn or being a song that's within the book of Psalms. Uh, that kind of gives a hint, um, though, that the <clears throat> all of those psalms are hymns and spiritual songs. That's what they are. They're praises to God. But there's a hint there that really the other, that same word is used in the Old Testament to refer to things outside of the book of Psalms. So it's not just that the book of Psalms is the book of songs. It is special in that way, but there were other books of songs that the Old Testament people had. You think of um, Miriam's song and uh, there's several others. I can't think of a couple others. I had notes on. I forgot. I missed them. But there are other songs in the Old Testament that are referred to using those same words. So what does the phrase mean, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? So psalms just means to make music, right? Hymns means praise God. And songs, that's where we get our word ode from. That's just a generic word, a very general sense for a song. It can refer to any kind of song. You just turn on the radio and any kind of music you find, that would be a song. But Paul here attaches a, a descriptor to it. He tacks on spiritual songs. So he's making it, he's differentiating songs of the world to spiritual songs, songs that give praise to God. And that's what we're to do. We're to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, praising God. Now think about that for a moment. There's a certain sense that music can be uplifting to one another. I realize... Not everybody can sing real well, and if you've ever stood too close to me when I'm singing, you'll realize I'm one of those that does not sing well. But we do uplift each other. Paul wants us to address each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But it's not just in singing. It's also you can address each other literally by speaking those. And many times I've heard pastors, and, and Pastor Harding included, uh, will use lines from songs in a sermon or as he's talking to the congregation, or even hearing people talk to each other using those. We can use those, those lines. They're, they're kind of encapsulated. They're easy to remember. We've learned them with music. They come to mind quickly. And you can use those to address each other. But it's not just horizontal to each other. Right? Not just to one another here within the church. If you look at the end of verse 19, it's singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So when we gather and worship, there's two things that are happening. We are singing to God when we sing, but we're also singing to one another. So we should be hearing one another sing. Elder Thornton and I were at a presbytery once, and he told me that one of his favorite things about presbytery was hearing all the elders sing. Right? It was uplifting. It's encouraging. So it's encouraging to each other. It's not 
only that we're singing to God, and we certainly are, and that's the primary reason, but it's also encouraging to each other to hear each other sing. So that's what a spirit-filled life looks like. It's not just corporate worship, but any time we're always addressing each other, always addressing each other, like Paul says, with psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, making melody to the Lord. In this context, when it says to the Lord, singing to the Lord is singing to Christ. We'd mentioned before that in Ephesians, the Lord in Ephesians is most often referring to Christ. Now Colossians 3, that parallel passage, it's the word of Christ that, it says it's the word of Christ that dwells in us richly. And it's through the word of Christ that we teach and admonish each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It uses that same phrase. So it's more than just singing. It's teaching and admonishing. It's an in, and encouragement. But it's all prompted by a spirit-filled life. So a singing is the embodiment of that perfect and wonderful praise to God, but we can also address each other and teach each other uh, using those same kind of words, psalms and hymns. Okay, the next point, look at verse 20. Spirit-filled thanksgiving. So giving thanks always to everything to God, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Thanksgiving is coming up real soon. It's just four weeks away. That's my favorite holiday, not just because my wife makes me stuffing from scratch, but it's the only holiday that it doesn't seem like the world is completely ruined yet. Christmas for me is just ruined. It's way too commercialized. I don't even enjoy it anymore. Um, that and we're Presbyterian, right? So every Sunday we get together, we're, thank we're having Thanksgiving and Christmas. We're celebrating that the Lord came. We're celebrating all the things that we're thankful for. So giving thanks is another result. It's another characteristic of being spirit-filled, having the Holy Spirit dwell within us. One who's filled with the Holy Spirit has a spirit speaking to us through Scripture to remind us of all the blessings we have in Christ. Now if we contrast that to one who's drunk with wine... You know, being drunk with wine usually just makes people a little bit more thankful for the wine itself, not, not for the things they have. Christian life is filled by a spirit that manifests itself in thanksgiving. And the form of the verb here that's used is giving thanks continually. So it's like so many of the other things that Paul's taught. It's something we're, we're to be doing on an ongoing basis. He says elsewhere, in everything give thanks. So it's a continuing attitude that we manifest. There's never a time that we'll exhaust the thanks that we give to God for the graces he's given us. Even when we're in heaven, we'll still be thanking God. We'll do a better job of it, but we're still giving thanks. And we give thanks for everything, right? And that's really a comprehensive statement. People will say, well, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for everything. Sometimes we almost say that flippantly, but we really should be thankful for everything. Everything we have, every opportunity we get. Everything has been given to us by God. Now I understand what I'm going to say next. I understand this part and it applies to me as well. I've, I've experienced this. But it's very easy for us all to be thankful when things are going really well, isn't it? Right? When everything is good, you're not worried about money, you're not worried about your kids, wife and you and your wife are getting along well. It's really easy to be thankful. But what about when we have difficulties? What about when there's tribulations? You know, God works everything for good. We read that in Romans 8. It's a familiar passage to all of us. The author of Hebrews reminds us the Lord disciplines those who he loves. We had a sermon just a few weeks ago by Pastor Morreale from Joel that kind of touched on that as well, that there's times that we're chastised and reminded 
by God to, to draw near to him, to rely on him, even in those times of difficulty. So when we go through trials and tribulations and difficulties, we still have to be giving thanks. Because even though it's hard, God's using those things to sanctify us and to mature us and to grow us closer to him. We have to give thanks, even in times of trouble. And notice what it says when Paul says we give thanks. Always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we bear Christ's name when we give thanks. That's what our baptism signifies. We're going to have a baptism this morning. Andrew will bear Christ's name. Right? That name gives us the authority and the privilege to go into God's presence, bearing Christ's name, and give him thanks. The Westminster Confession notes that prayer is accepted only in the name of Christ. In the name of Christ means that we're reflecting all that Christ is, all that he's done, all that he's accomplished, his whole person and work. Everything's embodied in that expression, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we come in Christ's name to God the Father, the one who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He's our Father. Who else would we think we would give thanks to? So there's a spirit-filled thanksgiving that by the Holy Spirit leads us to thank God the Father in the name of Christ for everything that we have, every opportunity, even when we're in, in trials and tribulations. So Paul's really teaching us there. There's a Trinitarian aspect to our thanksgiving too. Right? The Holy Spirit leads us to thank God the Father in the name of Christ. So all three aspects of the Trinity are taught in how we're, we're giving thanks. And the last point is spirit-filled submission. So verse 21, submitting to another, to one another out of reverence for the Lord. So in the next verses, Paul's going to get a lot more into submission, the verses that come after verse 21, and what that's going to look like in the Christian life. Unfortunately, sometimes we fear what people will say and think, and we kind of want to brush over the verses that follow this verse. And we can't really do that. It's God's word, all of it. And we don't get to skip over the parts that make us a little squirmish, right? We don't get to skip over parts that we don't think that the world will accept, that their conventional worldly wisdom will say, well, that's wrong, and you're a bad person for even saying that or thinking it. Paul's here setting a stage generally for what's going to come in these next verses. And the next, time, next several times we look at Ephesians, we're going to go through some of the specifics of what he's teaching about submitting in specific relationships. So in this text, we, we start, with, start with the phrase, submitting to one another. And submitting tends to be kind of a bad word in many circles, especially in the context like the next verse. Right? Those who deny that verse, they'll look to this verse as proof. Right? The next verse is about wives submitting, if you read verse 22, wives submitting to your husband. And they'll just say, well, that was just, that was just Paul in his day. What he really meant to say is we're all to be submitting to one another. Now, they'll go, go past wives submitting to your husband and say, husband loves your wives. They'll say, well, that one we can keep. But we don't want to tell wives that they have to submit because that's, that's not politically correct. Now, they're, they're right. I would say that in this verse, in verse 21, there is an aspect, there's a sense that it's true that we are all submitting to one another. So look a second. What does this word mean, submit? It means to subject, to subordinate, to arrange under. The form here had the sense it's to subject oneself. So the individual who's subjecting is subjecting himself to others. 
That's important when you get into the following verses because there's a voluntary attitude behind it. That's why submit is appropriate. You're submitting yourself to one another. Now some will look at this verse and see it as Paul describing submission to authorities. There's a little bit of a problem with that. When you go further on, you get to the end of chapter 5 and you get into chapter 6, it says fathers are being addressed and it says fathers bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. One of the problems of that it's going to be the fathers, you're, you're saying the fathers are submitting to the children. If you're saying that it's always submitting to authority, that kind of falls apart when it gets to that verse. Because you're, now you're telling them that they have to submit and they're the authority, right? But they're not really submitting to their children's authority. That wouldn't make any sense. They're subjugating themselves to God's word. So the sense of submitting oneself to each other, it's yielding to another's wishes. It's considering others better than ourselves, like Paul teaches in uh, Philippians chapter 2. So in this context, a submission reflects that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, yielding to one another in love for Christ's sake. So Paul's reminding us, reminding us here that a spirit-filled life will reflect itself in yielding to our brothers and sisters, hearing what they have to say, considering their needs and their desires, their walk. Having a mind of Christ, denying ourselves, putting others first, loving Christ's sheep. And all of this is done to one another in the church context. And as we relate to one another, as we serve each other, serving in whatever capacity we can. And we do all this, as Paul says, in reverence for Christ. Now some of you, um, on occasion we've gone through the Ephesians, a couple of people have asked about different translations. They, you may have a different translation of the Bible you've read, or even with you today. If you have a King James or a New King James or an NASB, you'll see that those versions have it translated, it isn't translated as reverence, it's translated as in fear of God. In the New King James and the King James, and in the NASB it'll say in fear of Christ. Fear in this context isn't really having terror or being scared of something. Fear is awe and wonder. Awe of who God is, awe of his presence, awe of his judgment and what he's done for us. And it's the only instance in the New Testament where it says fear of Christ. So Paul's teaching us to submit to one another is also submitting to Christ for awe of Christ. You're coming under his headship. You're yielding to what Christ wants. You're, you're realizing that Christ, you're recognizing that Christ is the king of kings and we have to submit to, submit to one another out of reverence to him. That spirit-filled submission. So the next couple of verses, chapter and verses 22, all the way down through chapter 6, verses 9, you'll start to see more some, uh, specifics about submission. You get into a lot of detail about how that affects our lives and where we're at. Unfortunately, and this will come up again as we go through that, as we go through those verses, we tend to listen to the wrong parts of those verses. Right? You get to verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. And the guys sit up and they pay close attention. And their ears perk up and they're like, you know, in their mind, they're like, honey, did you hear that? Right? You have to submit. But that's not how it works. Verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. And the women's ears perk up. They kind of want to remind their wives, you know, you used to love me to do that stuff for me that I needed or wanted. You get to verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, and you say, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And dad kind of leans over and looks down the pew at the kids like, you heard that, right? You have to obey me. 
But none of that is really submitting to each other in Christ. Submitting to one another in reverence for Christ means that when we're addressed, when the men are addressed, the men pay attention to what they're commanded. When the wives are addressed, their ears perk up to what they're commanded by Christ to do. Right? Because when the wives are addressed, guys, Paul's not talking to us. Right? That's the wives' deal to handle. When, when, the, when Paul tells the wives to submit to their husbands, it's not our job to make our wives to submit to us. So Paul's not talking to you sometimes. Pay attention to which commands he is addressing to you. True submission and reverence to Christ, we yield ourselves to Christ's command that's to me, not to everybody else. That spirit-filled submission. That's when I'm worried about the things I'm supposed to be doing in reverence for Christ, not what other people are supposed to be doing for me. And we do it out of reverence and fear and awe of Christ. Those are characteristics of Christians that are filled with the Spirit. One who's thankful for all things at all times. One who has a harmony with Scripture when they address one another. Okay, that's... That's that. Those verses. Any questions or thoughts?